meeting. Um, my name's Tim. Um, I want to reiterate that welcome if it's your first time here um, amongst us. Have you heard of the phrase, hidden in plain sight? We've recently had a, a shower leak um, in, a, in, our, in our flat, and it led to this growth of mold on the, on the wall of the bathroom. But it was growing so slowly, um, and it was such a part of day-to-day -day life, that I, I didn't really notice it. It was, it was just there all the time. It was, it was hidden in plain sight. That, that, that was until, of course, it got so big, and that one day Rosie pointed it out. We're going to deal with a, a topic today which can be hidden in plain sight. It can be just a part of our day-to-day -day lives that we never really notice it. We're looking at the topic of, of grumbling today, and we're going to meet a group of people in a moment called the Israelites who have a, a grumbling issue. And like that growth of mold in, um, on, on the bathroom wall, spoke of a, of a deeper issue of some water leak behind the walls. Grumbling for the Israelites speaks of a, a deeper heart issue inside of them. So let's have a look at God's word together. We're in Exodus 17, verses 1 to 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand there before you on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he, named the and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? There are three things I want to draw out of this passage this morning. That's the, the problem of grumbling, God's grace in grumbling, and how the gospel softens a grumbling heart. So firstly, why is grumbling a problem? We meet here a bunch of people called the Israelites, and they've just been saved out of slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh, and God's leading them to a promised land, a land he describes metaphorically as flowing with milk and honey, which means it's a rich and fertile and abundant land. But right now, the Israelites find themselves in a wilderness. And they say in, in verse 1, there's no, there's no water for the people to drink. It's hot and dry and arid. The sand is whipping sand in their faces. And they tell Moses to give them water to drink. But as they do so, they grumble. 
their hearts are set to grumble. And the grumbling spreads, it's contagious. It can just take one person in a group of people to start grumbling. I don't know if you've known that, um, say at work, you're in the team, and one person just starts moaning and grumbling, and suddenly the whole group can catch on. Grumbling spreads. And suddenly, the whole group of, um, the whole nation of Israel is grumbling against Moses. You can imagine the, the hateful glances in his direction. Grumbling spreads. And, and the people say to Moses, why did you bring us out of, of Egypt to kill us and our people in the desert of thirst? Yeah, Moses, Moses left his, his, his home of 40 years, went to do a job he didn't want to do just so he could lead the Israelites into the wilderness to kill them with dehydration. The, the chapter before, grumbling makes us say crazy things. The chapter before, the Israelites say, oh, that we had died under God's judgment in Egypt where there were pots of meat, which, if you're dead, I don't see the point. Um, <laughs> they, grumbling makes people say crazy things. And Moses even thinks they're going to start stoning him, that they're going to kill him. The people are grumbling, but ultimately their, their, their grumbling is with God. It says in verse 2, Moses says, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Their grumbling is a heart issue towards God. One writer calls grumbling discontentment made audible. Grumbling is like a, a, a low growl. Sometimes I, I go to my local park for a run, and there are often some fairly mean-looking dogs there. So after, after, I, I run past them, and I just check over my shoulder, are, are they chasing me? Am I a toy to them? Um, <laughs> go a bit faster. Um, but whatever a dog looks like, the dog starts growling at you. You know it's saying, I don't like you. I don't want to know you. Get away from me. The grumbling of the Israelites is a, is a growl against God. Grumbling is a heart matter, and it's rooted in unbelief. Unbelief that he is really good, that God is really good, that he's trustworthy. You see, the, the people of um, Israel have been, prov God's provided for them again and again and again. This very day, God has provided them food miraculously on the ground for them to eat. A moment ago, they needed water, like now, and God gave them water to drink. He is leading them via a, a, a pillar of cloud or fire, depending on the time, the whole time through the wilderness. It says at the start that God, they came here because of the leading of the Lord. God has led them to this place where there's no water. Surely he'll provide for them. But for the Israelites, instead of trusting that their God is good, they've seen him provide for them in the past, he'll provide for them now, they instead embrace unbelief that he's good, and so they grumble. The Israelites grumble. Silly them, right? We would, we would never do that. We'd never moan. It says in 1 Corinthians 10 that this passage here is written for us, for our good, to be an example for us. Joshua Rothman, a writer in, for the New Yorker, writes this in an article. Everyone grumbles. It's a basic human behavior. Still, I sometime, it sometimes seems as though everyone's doing it more. Last week, I spent the day keeping track of my social interactions Asking myself what percentage included grumbling. The answer was nearly 100%. I had grumbled, my friends had grumbled. If I'd overheard a phone conversation on the street, it involved grumbling. 
the kind of thing that makes you think. I can't help but think if that's the viewpoint of an American, then we in Britain are certainly no better, a nation known for our grumbling and moaning ability. In a world that grumbles, our grumbling as Christians can hide under the label normal. It's got to be one of the most socially acceptable sins around. Just a part of the furniture, hidden in plain sight. Grumbling can sound harmless, but it comes ultimately from a, from a heart of unbelief, unbelief that God is good. We feel the lack in our lives, and instead of trusting God's goodness, we embrace unbelief and we grumble sometimes. In the midst of a situation in life, be it the daily, daily unfulfilling life at, at home or at work, uh, a broken boiler, a parking ticket, politics, church. In these things, we can lose sight of God's goodness and we can grumble. I've seen this all too clearly in my own life over the past couple of weeks. I've been preparing this. One of the things I can grumble about is work. And when, when I grumble... I'm choosing to believe that God could be better towards me than he currently is being in my job. That he is withholding his goodness towards me in my area of work. And that comes out to me as grumbling. Often, first thing in the morning, arms crossed in the shower. <laughs> Just like that. Just like slowly waking up. Um, grumbling turns us in on ourselves and away from God. We see life through this frustrated desire, and we don't see the goodness of God. And it can catch on quick. Like the Israelites, it can, can catch on with, with housemates or, or in marriages. I know that me and Rosie have talked about this, that one person starts grumbling, it's so easy to buy into it. Grumbling and, and gratitude, actually, they're, they're both invitational. But wait, isn't, isn't life painful? Isn't life hard? And isn't it good to be honest with God about that? Aren't, aren't, aren't the Psalms full of complaints and lament towards God? Psalm 6, my soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? Psalm 13, how long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? Psalm 31, I am forgotten as a dead man. The difference between lament, which is what this is, which is taking our pain and suffering towards God and clinging on to his goodness, is that, that lament comes humbly before God and trusts his goodness. And, and, this is gr and grumbling doesn't come humbly, so it doesn't go to God at all. Instead, we just speak to ourselves. Grumbling and lament say two very different things about God. One says that God is ultimately good. One says that God is ultimately bad, or who is not good. In fact, because grumbling and grumbling, we talk to ourselves and not to God. Grumbling can it, it can really kill our prayer lives because we speak to ourselves and not to God. I, I don't know if you if you've heard those stories of of people who keep a dangerous pet snake in their house. I don't know if they're always true, but it generally involves them them feeding the snake and looking after the snake and enjoying the snake. But all the all the while, the snake is like sizing them up, seeing if it can eat them. Yeah. <laughs> Grumbling can be like that. 
It's innocuous. We, we enjoy it at times. We enjoy a bit of a, a pity party. We, we, we have it a part of our lives. But all the while, it is constricting around our prayer lives. So grumbling is a problem. It's a problem for the Israelites. It's a problem for me. Maybe, maybe it's a problem for you. Where, where might you grumble? But thankfully, this is not where we finish. You see in this passage how God has grace for grumblers. The Israelites, um, it says that they, they test the Lord, and the word there is like charging with a crime. It's like indicting. It's, 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 a, it's a legal term. They bring a charge against God. And so we have a courtroom scene. We'll see that in a moment. We have, God sets up a courtroom scene. I don't know if it's because I've, I've, I've worked in the legal world, um, but I, I love courtroom drama. Um, I love courtroom films from um, A Few Good Men to, to Legally Blondes. They're, they're full of unpredictability and twists and turns and that last-minute witness. Um, and this one here is, is no different. So God sets up our courtroom. Look at verse 5 with me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before... Find it again. Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. So Moses is to go in front of the people of Israel. There to one side, he's to, he's to go on ahead of them with the elders, uh, some, some, some kind of older figures and some respectable figures in the people of Israel. He's to form a court. He, he's the judge. So Moses is our judge. And he's to take his staff. And what does God remind us about the staff? He says it's the staff with which Moses struck the Nile. So back when they were in Egypt, Moses took the staff and he, he struck the Nile in judgment and the water turned to blood. It's a staff of judgment. Staffs and rods often in the Bible have symbolism of rule and judgment. And so Moses is to form a court. He's to take his, his, his staff, his, his, kind of, his judging staff, and he's to form a court. And he goes out in front of the people is Moses going to pronounce just judgment on the Israelites for their rebellion against God? Is he going to convict them of their sin? They've done wrong. What happens next is wonderful. Verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. When I was a boy at school, I'd have to go and stand before the headmaster. The headmaster doesn't come and stand before you. When you go to court, you go and stand before the judge. The judge doesn't come and stand before you. But God says he will come and stand before Moses. Moses is the judge, and God says he will come and stand before him. Something is afoot. He says he will stand before you there on the rock. God is, God is, he'll be on the rock. God is associating himself with the rock. The rock represents God. God then tells Moses to strike the rock. The people have rebelled against God. They, they're due judgment, but instead, God receives the blow, in a sense. The staff of judgment hits the rock. The punishment that should have gone to the Israelites instead goes on the rock, the rock that represents God. 
The Israelites don't receive the judgment they do. Instead, they receive life. Water comes from the rock when it is struck, and all the people can drink. What does the Bible tell us about this later on? It says that the rock is Christ. That this points to, is only possible because of Jesus and the cross. At the cross, Jesus was struck and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our sin. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. We were a sinful and wayward people, far from God, an offense to God. God in his justice punishes sin. God in his mercy takes it on our behalf. God intentionally here, purposely receives the judgment his own people deserve. He took the blow himself. God does not ignore us in a mess. He does not ignore our grumbling. No, he pays for it. The rock is struck and out comes water to quench the thirst of every Israelite in abundance. Jesus was struck and we receive life. Isaiah 12 says, with joy you will draw water from the well of salvation. We could just as much make ourselves right with God as we could conjure up a cup of water in a dry and arid desert. But God has done it for us. You can but drink. Jesus says, come to me, all who thirst, come and drink. Know if you, if you know him, know that he has washed you clean, that he has removed your sin from you as the east is from the west, that you are now a new creation in him. Over, over the past month in church life, um, we've had a, looked at a number of different rock passages in the Bible just through God's providence. We've, we've heard about that Jesus is the cornerstone, that on him the church is built. We've heard that when the storm comes, he's the rock that will not give way. Here we see the nature of the rock. He is the rock that has been struck. Crushed for our sin. Hallelujah. We receive life. So, so thirdly, how does this soften a grumbling heart. How does this gospel soften a grumbling heart? Well, it, it humbles us and it shows us God's goodness. In, in, in grumbling, we can set ourselves up as a judge. But when we see the cross, we're, we're all too aware of, of the reality of our own sin. Nothing shows us, shows us that more than seeing the cross, the lengths that God went to to atone for our sin. We see the cross and we're humbled. But more so, at the cross we see God's goodness, which pulls out grumbling by the root. Grumbling says, ultimately God isn't really that good for me. At the cross we see God's goodness, that he's better towards us than we ever really are towards ourselves. That he has loved us more than we will ever really fully grasp in his 
In the cross, it counters the narrative that God isn't really good towards us, that lies underneath every moan and quarrel and grumble. Romans 8.32 is, is a verse that you can live a long time off, and it says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, with him, graciously give us all things? God has given you his son. He's given his son for you. He's given his son for you that you might have him. Goodness and kindness, the thing that anything good in this world is an echo of, has been given for you, has been given to you, if you know him. And so the logic is, having given you his son, won't he also give you all things? That's Paul's logic there. All things is not, it's not prosperity. It's not health and wealth and, and success. No. It's for, it's for your ultimate good, that you would know and treasure Jesus. God has your ultimate good in mind, that you would be conformed to his likeness, Paul says. So here's the truth of it. God could not be any more good towards you if he wanted to be. God could not be any more good towards you if he wanted to be. He's, there's no partiality, there's no favorites, there's nothing left in the locker that he has not given you. He's given you himself. At times I, I find I have to ask myself, do I really believe that? Because it's easy to settle for kind of wishy-washy views of God's goodness. Oh, I affirm God's good. I think that all the time. But, you know, there's, there's, there's kind of limits on it. I might not kind of say that, but that's, that's kind of what I can believe. And in a storm of life, it can, we, we, we guess we need to have come to a decision. Do you, do you, do you believe that, that God is good and he's given his goodness to you? He's given you himself, and, and he will give you all things else that, that he needs to give you that you might know him. If you know him as perfectly good to you, if you know him as, as perfectly sovereign, grumbling is squeezed out. There's no place for it left to stand. The company is too good. So we, we, we hold on to this truth. We hold on to this verse and we fight grumbling with it. That's what Philippians 2 encourages us to do. We won't go there, but Paul writes there, do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's verse 15. And in verse 16, Paul marries it to, a, to another truth. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then verse 16, hold fast to the word of life. Hold fast to the truth of the gospel. Hold fast to the truth of the cross. And so we hope we hold on to this message that he has given his son for us. That's what we've been singing about today. We hold fast to this truth when grumbling comes. Does it say, oh, now you're a Christian, or you, you can move on from the gospel? That's a, that's a beginner thing. No, we hold on to the gospel. We hold, it says hold fast to it. I have to remind myself of it daily. So when, when grumbling comes tomorrow morning, when it's, and it's easy to moan when you're, when you're standing in the shower, considering the day ahead. Hold fast to the gospel. 
know that God is good, that he has given himself for you, that he will keep you and secure you, that his love is upon you, and trust that heaven, that he will not take you into a desert to die of thirst, that having done all this, that he will continue to be good to you. You have the band. Draw near to Jesus, the rock that was struck, who says, come to him all who are thirsty and drink. Let, his, let us trust his goodness afresh.